thank you for the privilege of being with you. And I, I greet you uh, in the name of Christ. And also the fellowship that we share together as churches is, is the Lord's doing. And um, I know you've had Doug Bookman here speak and uh, one of our profs. In fact, I found out a little secret. He had told Paul Martin that, that I wouldn't be able to come out here. Well, now I know why. He didn't want me out here. He wants to come out here every time that's possible. So I'm going to have a word with him that I'm coming. And, and, and uh, Dr. Coberly, you, you can tell him first if you see him, okay? Uh, it's great. Well, just what a joy. And I want to commend your pastor as well to you. It's a rare thing, a rare thing to have a pastor and his wife stay in a church, found it, and stay over the decades of ministry. Uh, the average pastor stays in a church less than five years. And uh, what, a, what a blessing it is to you to be so well shepherded by the team. It's been good to get to know Paul better by our trip and uh, your, your teammates in the ministry, having lunch with the elder team. I'm looking forward to that today. And he's promised to take me up to the mountain where this uh, lodge is. And I'm going to take a picture of myself in a, next to a 20-foot uh, snow drift. And it'll just blow everybody's mind in North Carolina. In fact, what I want to do here, because I want to send this to my wife, Marcia, is I want to take a picture of you guys. I didn't take a picture of the, uh, the early service. They weren't awake yet. So let me, let me take a picture of you. So if you'll just, on the count of three, wave. All right, on your mark, get set. One, two, three. Got it. Thank you. If you search the pages of Scripture, you'll find a, a number of reoccurring themes, obviously. Two of them are, one, that God is powerful, we call it in theological terms, he's transcendent, he's sovereign, he's, he's sort of other than us. The other doctrine is, is that the accompanying one to remember is that he's imminent, he's among us, he's personally deeply involved in his, in his creation. In Isaiah 43, God informs Israel of that. In fact, God is quoted by the prophet as he speaks to his nation and he says to them, I call you by name. I know your name. It's a staggering truth, really. And we were talking a little bit about church growth uh, over the time together this weekend and how this church has really grown and, and uh, how, how the Lord has given fruit to the ministry and how we as pastors at a certain point lose the ability to know everybody by name. I can well remember the church I planted. I've been there 30 years after about 150 to 200 people losing the ability to know everybody by name. I didn't like it at all. And uh, you just, that's just, you might know 75 people by name I've heard. That might be about the, the, the number of it in the university, in your work, in the church. You start thinking about it. How many people do you know by name? Think of the entire human race, every name known and every every little element of every single person known by God. I think Jesus demonstrated this at his incarnation. When in his ministry, you'll see him introducing himself to people by stating their name without any introduction on their part. For instance, you remember when he's going through Jericho and they're pressing in to see him and he's, he's, he's going underneath this tree and there's this crooked little tax collector up in one of the branches. And he goes under that tree and looks up and without any introduction, he says, Zacchaeus, and I think at that point, Zacchaeus probably almost fainted. Come down. I'm going to have lunch with you today. No introduction. When Saul is 
is heading down that Damascus road to arrest Christians named after the great king of Israel. He is passionate about uh, this, this covenant nation belonging solely to God and, and uh, he's going to be converted. The glory of the resurrected Christ appears to him on that road and Jesus says from the clouds and the glory of that brightness, Saul, who are you persecuting? Who are you, Lord I know there's a sovereign up there talking to me. Who are you? And he says, Jesus, whom you persecute. In other words, as if to say, you don't know my name, but I know yours. Your name is Saul. And I know a lot more about you. Now we often wonder, don't we? Yes, God is uniquely sovereign and there's no one like him. And, but we wonder, does God really care about me? Does God really know what's happening in my life on June 5th as I sit here in the auditorium of Laramie Valley Chapel? Does God really know? And when the pressure's on, you even wonder, does God really care? If there's someone that would answer the question, it would be this one whose name is synonymous with suffering. And I want you to go to his journal in Job chapter 1 if you'll turn there. God has remained silent for perhaps a year or two, longer, we're not told, long enough for his friends to gather, travel, great distance to see him. If you go to chapter one, and all I want to do is introduce the study today by reviewing the tragedy that befalls him. If you're older in the faith, you already know this. Younger in the faith, it may be somewhat new. But if we pick it up at verse 13, what happens here is that one messenger after another basically trips over the other one preceding him and delivers an even more horrific message of tragedy. Now, when I first read this text and I eliminated the commentary and just read the message of each messenger, I got on my stopwatch and I just began to read at a normal pace, wondering how long it took for his world to be turned upside down. It took 39 seconds to read the messages from these four messengers. Beginning in verse 13, going down to verse 19, they come one after another. And by the way, the Hebrew construction uh, indicates very clearly that they are indeed interrupting each other. They're not even hardly waiting until the previous one stops before they deliver the next message. And for the sake of time, if I could just sort of summarize the messages, the first one shows up and he says effectively this, Job, warriors stole your cattle and killed all your ranch hands. And before he even finishes, the second one shows up and says, Job, fire, more than likely a lightning storm, fell from heaven, started brush fires, trapped your shepherds, killed them and all your flocks of sheep. They're all gone. And before he even finishes, the third messenger arrives and says, the Chaldeans came and raided your export-import company, took all your camels, killed all your employees. And then the fourth comes with the most devastating of all. Job, a windstorm seemed to target your, your oldest son's house, flattened it, more than, than likely a tornado. It seemed to target it, flattened it, killing all ten of your children. In 39 seconds or less, Job's world is ripped to shreds. Now, if you go back to verse 4 of chapter 1, it tells us a little of the context of when that happened. It says here, 
In verse 4, his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. Mark that, on his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. They're celebrating. On their day, Old Testament scholars believe that this is an implication of a birthday party. On their particular day, they'd get all their siblings together and have a birthday party. And this particular one, verse 13 tells us, was the birthday party of the oldest sibling, the firstborn son, which only implies even greater horror that as they celebrate his birthday, all ten will be killed. And just to set the stage, it takes 39 seconds then for them to learn, Job and his wife, they've lost their businesses, they've lost their fortune, they've lost their employees, they've lost their livestock, and they have lost their children. The Bible doesn't really tell us how long all this takes. It condenses the story. It may be weeks or months. But at some point, if Job is tempted to wake up and in the morning say, well, uh, thank God, at least I have my health. He's going to lose that too. He's unaware of the encounter taking place between Lucifer and Elohim. And he's about to lose it. And we don't have time, but let me just summarize 19 different ailments his journal reveals that he will suffer with. He suffers from boils covering his entire body, persistent itching. He can't eat. He's overwhelmed at times with dread and fear, suffers from insomnia, develops worms in his open sores, suffers from cracked and oozing skin, has difficulty getting a breath of air in his lungs, develops dark circles around his eyes, experiences sudden and dangerous weight loss, has constant high fever and aching joints, and is in perpetual, don't forget this, in perpetual, unrelenting pain. It's one thing to suffer physically. It's another thing to have pain that will not go away. And he has pain and everything else. He's living a nightmare. If you look over at chapter 2 and verse 8, he's moved out of the estate and he's living in a different place. We're given a clue. We're told he's sitting among the ashes. That's a formality, formal statement. He's sitting in the place of ashes. That's a reference to what we would call the city dump, the landfill. They would keep the fire perpetually burning, and they would, they would burn the trash away. Job is sitting on the ashes left by the burning of garbage. By the way, this is the place where the lepers lived, beggars frequented, wild dogs looking for food. He's, he's probably sitting there for a number of reasons, we're not told, more than likely to avoid the gawking of the neighbors, to avoid the young people who at this point, or later on, will make up songs, we're told in his journal, to mock him. He wants to avoid people. Probably also the fact that the ashes provided a soft place for him to sit alone. He's, he's got a piece of broken pottery, and when his friends arrive, he's, he's scratching himself in, uh, without stopping to try to rid himself of this terrible itching. 
Now we get to the end of chapter one and maybe dip into chapter two and, and we learn that he doesn't curse God and he even gives this amazing statement in chapter uh, one and verse 21, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I'll return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And we kind of sing you know, the song about it and, and we think, man, is Job amazing or what? And we go home and eat lunch. If we take the time to go through his journal he, he will lose the brightness of his halo. He doesn't curse God or abandon God, but he does what we do. He's a real man. He demands that God show up and explain himself. In fact, at one point he says, I wish I could create a courtroom. I would want God on the witness stand and I would demand that he tell me what he's doing, which is the same thing we do. Only his is recorded. Job is teetering on the precipice of spiritual sanity. He's, he's terrified of what's going on in his life. Finally, though, at the end of what could be a couple of years, God shows up. He finally shows up. And, and I'm going to go to the end of that. So go over to chapter 38, would you? What I find really startling is that God does not take Job or force him to begin a course of systematic theology. You know, make him read that thick volume by Stephen Sharnock on the existence and attributes of God or go through Grudem's theology or Ryrie's basic doctrines and then write term papers that I would have Clayton grade, by the way, if I could. What God instead does is take Job on a tour of creation. He starts out there with the stars and the planets, the universe out there, showing his sovereign power. And then he brings it down to individual animals. I like to think of it this way. He takes Job to the zoo and back. And so what I want us to do is touch down on the eight animals that God introduces or reintroduces to Job and the implications of this trip to the zoo. In fact, what he's going to do is tell Job, look, I'm going to remind you by showing you one animal after another as you marvel over my design that I am not only way out there in my sovereignty, I am personally involved in my creation. The first animal that God describes is in verse 39 of chapter 38. Let's start there. God's asking the questions. Can you hunt the prey for the lion? Can you satisfy the appetite of the young lions? In other words, Job, do you have any power over these fierce animals? In fact, I think the implication is, Job, do you care if they ever eat again? And Job's answer would, of course, have been, I don't really care if they ever eat again. You know, they can starve for all I care because I could be their next meal. Have you ever been near a lion? Closest I ever got was in Africa on a safari. And I'm in a Jeep and we're, we're driving very slowly through a pride. And those male lions, the backs of those lions, which are about four feet, they weigh up to, oh goodness, I don't know how much they weigh. I looked it up. It's uh, 600 pounds, I believe. 600 pounds. The back of that lion reached the bottom of the windowsill in that Jeep. And I had, of course, rolled that window up very tightly because I knew he wanted to kill me and eat me because I hate cats and he's a cat. And he probably heard that and he wants me. OK, 
okay? But I could hear that lion purring through the closed window and the purring sounded like the idling of the engine of your pastor's pickup truck. You talk about impressive. Job, do you care that they eat again? No, I really don't. In fact, look at what he asks, verse 40. Do do you know how I've built into them the ability to crouch in their dens and lie and wait in their lair for their next meal? Not really. By implication, he's saying, look, Job, you're terrified of them. You you never know where they're lying in wait. You, You don't know you might be their next meal. These massive Animals, I have the ability to direct these savage beasts. And in that implication is this. I have the ability to to direct the savagery that, that intersects your life. Those savage events. I'm very aware of them. God moves on to the next animal, verse 41. Job, who prepares for the raven its nourishment when its young cry to God and wander about without any food? Now, of all the birds that God would bring to the attention of Job, I wouldn't start with this one. This large bird with its screeching sound, very unpleasant, very uh, unsavory in their habits. They enjoy decomposing Animals for meals. He'd probably seen them hunting with wolves, eat what's left over. Uh, It's as if God wanted Job to know that he cared for even the unsavory and the unlovely creatures. That he hears the crying of these creatures for food when they're hungry, as if they're crying out to their creator. Even the undesirable, the unpleasant, the unattractive Birds are known and and cared for by God's providence as if to say, here you are, Job. Look at you. You're you're sitting at the landfill, the town dump. You have running sores and oozing flesh and boils all over your body. You're sitting there in your filthy, mud-caked clothing, blood-soaked, tattered. How unsavory are you? How unattractive are you? And your demands of me are like screeching birds. But I still care for you. Your cries have been heard by me as well. God moves Onto another animal, verse 1 of chapter 39. Do you know the time the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the deer? Can you count the months they fulfill? Do you know the time they give birth? The obvious answer, of course, to all the above is no. Do you know when the deer calve? Do you know when the deer, where the deer live? No, those animals stay hidden during the day. They come out at night or dusk along the country roads out where I live. We raised four children in our home on the outskirts of town. It's not unusual to see deer in our neighborhood at, at dusk. And every time my children you know, would leave the home, if they were driving back at night, you know, I'd tell them as you know, we hung up the cell phone, the last words would be, here it comes again, here comes dad again. Watch out for deer. Watch out for deer. You know, the only member of our family to have ever 
hit a deer, it was me. The only one. My F-150, driving down, I just hit that deer. She came out of nowhere, and I sent her to the happy hunting ground in the sky or wherever, and it tore the entire front end of that F-150 off. And here's the really bad thing. The really bad thing was it happened at 9 o'clock in the morning, and I just wasn't watching. They just make an appearance. I don't know where they live. I can't track them. Some of you hunt them. Uh, it's difficult to find them. The implication, God is effectively saying, Job, you don't know where they live. You don't know where they're going to take it, when they're going to make an appearance, but I see them. Their ways aren't hidden from me. In fact, do you know how many months are along now, that doe out there, unnamed? How many months along she is before she calves? I even know that. I know many days before she'll give birth. He's showing Job his intensity and his passionate care and concern and awareness over creation. As if to say, Job, you don't think you'll ever make an appearance again. I know where you are and when you will. God moves on to another animal. Verse 5, who sent out the wild donkey free? Who loosed the bonds of the swift donkey? To whom I gave the wilderness for a home and the salt land for his dwelling place. He scorns the tumult of the city, the shoutings of the driver. He does not hear. Job, is the donkey ever asked you for permission to do anything? <laughs> no. In fact, the, the, the donkey won't listen uh, to anybody tell him anything. The shoutings of the driver, he does not hear. As if to remind Job that God, though, has designed these salt lands for the donkey. God knows where they live. God has assigned the habitat for this creature, just as he has assigned the habitat for you and me. Have you ever thought about the fact that God not only created you for a place, he created that place for you? And when you think about it from God's perspective, it's as if he begins with you and he cares so much about you, he creates your habitat for you. You know, the oldest Coberly daughter starting school here at the University of Wyoming, to think that God created the University of Wyoming for her and the rest of you students. Your habitat right now is Laramie, Wyoming or nearby. Mine is Carrie. He didn't just create me for that. He created that for me. That's staggering to consider. Job, this is your habitat. Job, at this very moment, your habitat is this ash heap. I created that for you. He moves to another animal. Verse 9 Will the wild ox consent to serve you? Will he spend the night at your manger? That is, is he going to spend the night in your barn? Can you bind the wild ox in a furrow with ropes? That is, can you harness him? Can you hold the reins in your hand and make him plow the valley after you? Can you make him plow a straight line? <laughs> I don't think so. Now, you might think, well, surely he can. He probably is plowed behind oxen. Well, this particular animal is not the oxen you might think of that plow in the fields. 
This is translated differently in other translations. The old authorized version, I love that one. It's translated unicorn, which it isn't. Uh, Most Old Testament scholars believe that this animal is the auroch, now extinct. The auroch was more than six feet wide at his shoulders. And he had long horns pointing forward. This was a terrifying animal. In fact, David in chapter 22 of his Psalms and verse 11 asks God to protect him from the auroch, the horns of the auroch. Ever since 1627, I found in my research, this enormous animal, considered the most powerful hoofed beast, when extinct, we have extant manuscripts telling us of Assyrians who would hunt them. In fact, at one point, we have uh, descriptions of Egypt's Pharaoh Thutmose III, who reigned 1,500 years before Christ, talking about his hunting parties. And on one occasion, his hunting party and he killed 75 aurochs, which was sort of a, a sign of his military prowess and his strength. This was bragging rights for the king. He killed an auroch. These were not the domesticated oxen that Job would have used in his fields. This was, this was a wild animal that, that could kill a man a dozen different ways. In fact, if you, if, if you, you kind of think in your minds the writings of Tolkien, if this brings to your mind the wild auroch of the Lord of the Rings, you're, you're pretty close because he actually did design them after this extinct animal. And God is basically asking the question, Job, can you tame the auroch? Can you put him in a harness and get him to plow a straight furrow? (laughs) The obvious answer is no. And God is saying then by implication, I can. I can can rein in and I can hold the reins in my powerful hands I can control this wild animal, here's the implication, just like I can control the wild chaos in your life right now. The reins have not slipped from my hands, no matter how chaotic your life is. Listen, for those that don't believe that God is answering Job, he is. In fact, he's answering him so clearly, Job never once says, oh, oh, Lord, would you stop and give me a little commentary on that one? Like I'm doing. No questions needed answering. Let me me move on to a a sixth animal. We're going to look at eight of them. The sixth one. By the way, here at verse 13, God stops asking questions and just begins to, to provide information about this female ostrich. The ostrich's wings flap joyously with the pinion and plumage of love. She abandons her eggs to the earth and warms them in the dust. And she forgets that a foot may crush them or that a wild beast may trample them. She treats her young cruelly. She seems as if they weren't hers. Though her labor would be in vain, she seems unconcerned. Because God has made her forget wisdom. (laughs) He has not given her a share of understanding. In other words, God hasn't made her the brightest bird on the planet. To this day... She is the largest living bird, reaching a height of eight feet, weighing in at about 300 pounds. She'd make a great linebacker for the Broncos. She has wings, but she can't fly. 
Uh, she builds her nest in the sand. But the fact that she was ignorant was already well known in the Middle East. In fact, Pliny, the Roman naturalist and author, was the first to write of the ostrich in ignorance, hiding its head and neck in, in bushes and, and tall grass, as if to assume that since he or she couldn't see anything, nothing was there. It's the kind of game you play with your children or your grandchildren. They cover their eyes and they think you've disappeared because they can't see you. And then you pull their eyes open and oh, it's so exciting. Why? Because they thought you went away. They catch on a little later. This led, of course, to the caricature, the cartoon of the ostrich that we often see terrified and as a result, burying its head in the what? In the sand. Because that means then there's no need to fear. But for all of her ignorance, look what she can do. Exhilarating to run and watch her. Look at verse 18. When she lifts herself on high, that is to run, she laughs at the horse and the rider. In other words, she's faster than the horse. She lifts her head, brings out her wings just so for balance, and runs, reaching a maximum speed of 40 miles an hour. In fact, her strides, when she's at top speed, are 15 feet apart. So just think in terms of this auditorium. Let's say she's going to run through here at top speed. Her first, her first uh, step is over there by that wall. The next one is right about here. The next one is right there. And then she's gone. Foom, 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 and gone. 40 miles an hour. Now, wait a second. That's all wonderful to know. You know, she can run faster than a horse, 15 feet, at, you know, in stride. Job's just lost 10 children. He's sitting out on the ash heap, scraping himself. He's in fear. He's traumatized. He is, he's teetering. And, and God's going to take time to describe an ostrich? Yes. I think the implication is that God is effectively saying, Job, I, I create stuff you'd never conceive of creating. I, I create things that don't seem to make any sense. You ever been there in your life? Maybe you're there right now. Some events occur, and, and your prayer to the Lord is, Lord, would you tell me why that made sense? Would you help me understand how that helped anything? Would you clue me in because it seems like nonsense, right? I can remember going into my college, my senior year of college, living a pretty active life, playing sports, involved in all the normal things, and, and beginning to fall. And finally, my girlfriend, whom I married, later convinced me I needed to go see a doctor. And I did. And then he sent me immediately to a neurosurgeon. I was 22. And that neurosurgeon looked at me and he said, this is the name of the disease you have. It's untreatable, incurable. Nothing you can take for it. There's nothing you can do for it. And you have about 13 years left to be mobile. You'll be eating through a straw. You won't be able to walk, chew, move anything. And I remember going to God 
saying something like this. I'm preparing for ministry. Would you tell me how that makes sense? Would you help me understand what in the world you're thinking? Because it seems to me like nonsense. In God's providence, and I can tell you now uh, of how good he has been over the years, but one thing he did is he dialed that way down so that it affected me and it, it affects me very slowly. In fact, it's the reason your pastor graciously put the pulpit here on the floor so I don't have to walk up these stairs, which would be very difficult to do. But I continued walking past the age of 35, past the age of 40, 45, I can do this. And I can certainly eat. I can chew. Man, can I chew through a dozen Krispy Kremes and just like that. I, and now I'm 58 and I don't look a day over 30. I know. It's, 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 it's amazing. But I remember thinking, Lord, what, what, what are you doing? There are times in your life when you're going to wonder out loud to the Lord, Lord, would you tell me how that makes any sense? Like Job we have to relearn the truth that there are designs of God that go under the categorical heading of unexplainable, different, strange. And the Lord reminds us through the prophet Isaiah all over again, my ways aren't your ways. My thoughts, they're not your thoughts. Just stay with me. Job, look at the ostrich and marvel at the mysterious, strange, unexpected creation. Here's a seventh animal, verse 19. Do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like the locust? His majestic snorting is terrible. He paws in the valley and rejoices in his strength. He goes out to meet the weapons. He laughs at fear and is not dismayed. He does not turn back from the sword. The quiver rattles against him. The flashing spear and javelin with shaking and rage. He races over the ground and he doesn't stand still at the voice of the trumpet. As often as the war trumpet sounds, he says, aha, and he scents the battle from afar and the thunder of the captains and the war cry. Isn't that magnificent? Job had evidently seen this. And God is sort of describing to him a stallion trained for battle. And then Job would be well aware of that. But God is asking, have you ever thought about who it might have been that created him that way? Created him so that it's instinctively eager to get into the fight. He can't wait. Other animals will, will, will run from the rattling of sabers, but not this one. They'll, 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 they'll run in terror away from the scent of death and carnage. Not this one. Who created him, Job, to smell war and swallow up the ground to get there first? One author wrote nearly 200 years ago, the horse's majesty and energy and strength and impatience for battle and courageous spirit are evidences of the greatness of God who made them. And see, here's the subtle message to Job and to you and me. Don't run from the battle. 
If I put a mane on that creature, an instinct in him to face the battle, I so robe you with the armor you're going to need to face it. Don't run from it. Run into it. Face forward. Don't quit the race. Run the race. If I've equipped a horse to manage war, I can take care of you in the face of it. Don't give up. Don't give up. The last is this, verse 27. Is it at your command, Job, that an eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high on the cliff he dwells and lodges upon the rocky crag, an inaccessible place? From there he spies out food, his eyes see it from afar. Job, did you have anything to do with that? And God, you notice here, specifically points out the incredible eyesight of this eagle. In my research, I found that eagles' eyes have eight times more visual cells than human eyes. I have no idea what that means, but that sounds like a lot, doesn't it? Eight times more? What I do understand from reading is that an eagle flying above the tree line can watch a spider this morning crawl across the church parking lot out there. That an eagle can watch a fish just that large jump as he soars, watch that fish jump in a lake five miles away. Now, evolutionists would say that the eagle developed that eyesight because it made its nest so high. And it soars so high, so it kind of developed over many years the ability to do that. Now, God says here, I've, I've built it that way because I know it will build its nest so high. God created the ostrich to put her eggs in the sand. God created the eagle to put her eggs in high nests, in trees and on craggy mountain cliffs. The diversity of creation then as he takes us from the ostrich and the raven to the eagle and the horse, and the auroch, and the donkey, shows us the ability of God to handle the diversity of trials that you will face in here. And they are diverse. Every one of you have yours. Isaiah quotes our unique God who says, I am God, there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, my purpose will be established whether it is calling a bird from the east or a man from a far country. In other words, all of creation is not only created by my sovereign power, but finds my personal interest. So Job, chapter 40, verse 1, what do you want to do now? Do you want to contend with me? God says, let him who reproves God answer it. In other words, you wanted a courtroom, you wanted me on the stand, and you wanted to give me some rather logical things that prove that what I did made no sense. Now that I've shown you my creation, is there anything you'd like to say? Job says here in verse three, Job answered the Lord, look there, chapter 40, verse three, and said, behold, I am insignificant. <laughs> What can I reply to you? I lay my hand 
on my mouth. In other words, that's a, that's a statement of reverence. I have nothing to say. Who am I to argue with the powerful creator? In fact, I have said too much already. I'm not about to say one more thing. I have been caught in my words. I came across this interesting account of a lawyer. Only this could happen in North Carolina, by the way. But he'd found a clever way to get around his accountability in the law. In fact, this story, true story, won the Criminal Lawyers Award contest a few years ago. The article reads this, a Charlotte, North Carolina lawyer purchased, and really was doing it for fun, and they, they, they try to do things and get loopholes around the law, and then they, they award somebody that did it the best. This guy won it this year. But anyhow, he purchased a box of very rare cigars. And then he insured them against fire. Within a month, he smoked his entire stockpile of 24 cigars and then filed claim against the insurance company. In his claim, the lawyer stated the cigars were lost in a series of small fires. The insurance company, of course, refused to pay, citing the obvious the man had smoked the cigars, he'd, he'd lit them himself, and insurance claim against fire damage, they said, can't mean the same thing as a fire whereby he himself consumes the cigars. And the court sided with the lawyer and won. In delivering the ruling, the judge said this. He said, even though the claim is frivolous and ridiculous, however, the lawyer, quote, held a policy from the company in which it had warranted that the cigars were insurable against fire and also guaranteed it would insure them without defining what is considered to be an unacceptable fire and thus obligated to pay. To the surprise of everyone, the insurance company said okay and accepted the ruling and paid $15,000 to the lawyer for his loss of 24 cigars lost in 24 separate fires. The lawyer was rather proud of himself. But as soon as he cashed the check, the insurance company was waiting and it had him arrested on 24 counts of arson. <laughs> Isn't that great? With his own testimony used against him, the lawyer was convicted of intentionally setting fire to insured property 24 different times and was sentenced to two years in jail. Isn't that great? Caught, that's why I thought of it, caught by his own words, really slick, really clever, caught. I think of Job here, he was caught. I mean, and you'd have to read his journal and all the things he says about God, caught. Now he lays his hand on his mouth and he says, I've actually said way too much. I'm not going to say anything more. You know, friends, maybe the best time to lay your hand on your mouth is in the midst of adversity, difficulty, trial. When you're in the middle of that trash heap, seated on ashes, when it doesn't make sense, that's actually a great time to have no argument but only silence and trust 
and surrender. See, this trip to the zoo should leave us like Job going, you know what? I don't understand all that God has designed when he designed my habitat, when he designed my body, when he designed the events that are taking place in my life. But I do know this. Let's really let him do the speaking. (laughs) The one who spoke the first words of human history desires to have the last word in your life and mine. I close with this. Several years ago, I was in India preaching in several different states, and one evening my host put me up. We were on the road and uh, put me up at a beautiful Sheraton Hotel Um, And when you travel to third world countries, the only places you really can trust are places like these. But it was no doubt the most opulent, uh, marble-covered hotel I'd ever been in in my life. And, And the lobby of that Sheraton was about the size of this auditorium. Walk through the doors, and then where these windows are, there were doors leading into shops where they sold very expensive things made in India. And, and so I, while my host was taking care of the details, I just started doing a little tour. And I got about to the third door, and I looked in, and I noticed that the ground was covered with some kind of white fabric. The walls were covered as well, and there were white fabric uh, pieces just hanging from the ceiling. Everything was white, beautifully, perfectly white. And then I I was about to turn away and leave, although I couldn't quite figure out what it was. They weren't selling anything. A man got up who was sitting in the back, and I hadn't spotted him. He got up, and he walked toward me, an Indian man who was dressed in white clothing, white robes, a white turban, and it hit me, obviously, a guru. And I was sort of turning to to leave, and he, he called out in perfect English. He said, sir, wait, wait. And I waited, and he walked toward me. And he said, please, if you will come in, I will tell you your future. I said, really? You know, and a part of me wanted to know it, but I knew he couldn't tell it. I said, you, you will tell me my future? Oh, oh, yes. I said, well, sir, I'm, I'm, thank you, but uh, I'm, I'm not interested. Turned and he insisted, sir, if you will come in here, I, I will be able to tell you your future. And I wanted to say something for the gospel's sake, and my mind was racing, and then it occurred to me. And I said to him, all right, I'll come in and let you tell me my future if you will first tell me my name. And he sort of hung his head, and he smiled, and he said, I I can't do that. I said, you can't tell me what my name is. He said, no, sir, I can't. I said, then, sir, how can you tell me my future, unique to me, if you can't, first of all, discern my name? And then I said, sir, I want you to know I belong to a God whom I believe is the true and living God, who not only knows my past, but he knows my future and He knows my name. I think you get to the end of this tour and you discover again that God is not only unique, the one and only God, but he knows your difficulties and he knows your challenges. 
He knows your problems. He knows your pain. Job learned and we should learn with him. God does not lose sight of you even when you bury your head in the sand or if you soar on the mountaintops. He, he doesn't lose sight of you when you're surrounded by wild chaos and danger. He knows all about your past. He knows everything about your future. He knows where you sit right now. In fact, he happens to know your name.